please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter one, chapter four, and we're going to read starting in verse one through sixteen. Ephesians chapter four, starting in verse one through sixteen. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with a promise, with a promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory." For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Myla. You guys can have a seat. Well, good afternoon, everybody. I know it's already been said from up here, but uh, this is a little different, a little different for all of us. And um, obviously, uh, there are reasons why. Uh, some of us in this room are, are addicted to our phones and watching the news and getting updates. And some of us in this room, I'm sure, are like, we are sick of it. We are, we are done uh, with talking about this stuff. Um, I, I just want to say a couple of quick things, and then we're going to jump into, into our text t- together. Uh, number one, thinking about Romans chapter 8 for a minute. Romans chapter 8 is, is, a, is a verse, there's a verse in Romans 8 that says that God has subjected this earth to futility. And I take from that, if you read on in Romans chapter 8, he goes, Paul goes forward to talk about the various things that will afflict us in this life. So there is even things like famine and pestilence that he talks about later on in Romans chapter 8. And if you go back to that previous verse, he has subjected the earth to futility. And then it says, why? Why did, why did he do that? It says, in hope. In hope. And that's a big theological question, isn't it? Why would God subject the earth? 
when the sin came into this world through Adam and Eve, would God sort of subject the earth to not working the way it should, where we get things like natural disasters and where we get things like viruses. And there is a theological answer that's beyond what I can give right now in this short little intro before the sermon. But, but one of the things that we notice happens when human beings look around at the world around us and notice that the world is not working the way it's supposed to work, there is a grace in that. Because one of the worst things we can do as human beings is think that we are doing just fine the way we are outside of Christ. And when things happen in the world that, that, that sort of dismantle us for a minute, shake us loose of our false securities, then there is great hope that we might actually find the one who is true security. And so I, I spend time walking before our service every Sunday morning, and I walk around this campus, and I pray for, I think there's five other churches meeting in this whole area, and I, I pray for each one. Uh, I pray different prayers for each one, but I pray for each one, and I, one of the things I was doing in my prayer time this afternoon was praying that this coronavirus would shake people loose from false securities and would ultimately lead them to the one who is the true security. And so that is a hope that we as Christians have. Now, that's the one thing I want to, that's the first thing I want to say. Second thing I want to say is how do we now in the church, those of us who have put our trust in Christ, how do we now respond to this? And let me just say this, if you, if, you, if you go from Romans 8 now in your minds to Romans 14, and by the way, I didn't put these up on the board or up on the screen. Romans 14, Paul is talking about a certain situation going on in the church where different Christians have different opinions about how something should be handled. And here's what he says in Romans 14. He says, let each one be convinced in his or her own mind. So now, what's important to say about Romans 14 is it was not sin and not sin. It was, how do we honor the Lord in, in we're going to honor the Lord in the way we're living in, in, in situation A, and then we're going to also, other people are thinking that there's another way to honor the Lord. And Paul says, let each be convinced in his own mind. Now, why do I say that? Because we as a church are composed of different people who respond to things differently. And some are going to respond to things by, by, by taking a more precautionary approach. Some of you know what I'm talking about. The, the, the store aisles, are some of them are empty, right? And, and, and they're going to take a more precautionary approach. And some, and, and I hope that that's not out of fear. I hope that that is out of, um, we want to be really careful. We want to love our neighbors. And there's others that are in the very same church, love the very same God, that are going to say, you know what? This is, this is, I'm just going on with life, and I want to show those around me. I want to show the world that I can just go forward with things as they are because I'm showing that I am not afraid. Okay, I think in both of those responses to this situation is a heart that is saying, I want to honor the Lord. So this is one of those moments where we have to be able to say, if we're going to have unity in this church, where we have to be able to say to one another, let each be convinced in his own mind. So friends, brothers and sisters, don't turn and look at somebody else's response to this whole thing and go, that's wrong. Now it may be, and it may require sitting down with them to find out that there's a heart of fear underneath this whole thing. However, don't assume that. 
Let's not assume that with each other, and let's let each respond as they deem appropriate to this thing and give grace within the church that there are different responses that people can have. Fair? So let's go forward now. We are moving forward. That's the last thing I'm going to say about the coronavirus until we get to our communion time, which you'll see why we're doing communion a slightly different, differently. But here's what I want to say. I want to say that we as Echo Church are moving forward in what God has called us to do. So there is, there, there's no derailing happening here. We are continuing in our study this afternoon of, of elders and what does it mean to be an elder in the church so that we as a church can come to grips with the fact that at some point we're going to be choosing elders other than myself to be leading the church. So we're actually in Ephesians 4. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 and we will be starting in verse 1, and I've used enough time to intro, so let me come into prayer, and let's go to prayer, and then uh, let's start with the, the main point and get going in the text. Father, we come to you now asking for wisdom as a church. We need wisdom in so many ways, but specifically right now, we ask for wisdom in the future choice that we will make as a church of who will lead our church. Who is it that will actually be those who we give a certain amount of respect and submission to when it comes to teaching the Word of God, when it comes to uh, leading us in certain vision things that we're supposed to do as a church? God, we want to be faithful. We want to be found faithful in that. And also, God, we need wisdom to know our role as a church. Us as members of a church, those of us who are Christians in this room, we want to know what it is that we're supposed to do from your word. And so I pray, God, you would make it clear this afternoon. You know my, my, my limits and my frailty and my weakness. And I pray that you would speak through me this afternoon so that there would be clarity from your word on what it is that we are called to do as a church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are in week number two of looking at elders and their relationship to the local church. And we're in Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm just going to give you the main point, and we're going to dive right into the text. Elders, here's the main point if you're taking notes, elders are given by God to equip the church to use their gifts for the church's unity and God's glory. Let me just say that one more time. It's a mouthful. Elders are given by God to equip the church to use their gifts for the church's unity and God's glory. We are opened to Ephesians chapter 4, and we will be starting in verse 1. Now, before I take you to verse 1, I love that Myla read chapter 1, because chapter 1 is what sets up all of Ephesians, and it's an important part of talking about chapter 4 is talking about chapter 1 and what's going on before chapter 4. So if you have not, if you're not familiar with the book of Ephesians, I'm just going to break it down very simply for you right now. There are two parts to the book of Ephesians. The first part, chapters 1 through 3. The second part, chapters 4 through 6. It breaks down so nicely. Chapters 1 through 3 tend to be, they tend to talk about what we have been given in Christ. So you read in the text that was read, we just saw a litany of things, a list of things that we have actually been given because we are, and the phrase that repeats over and over and over again is, in Christ. In Christ you have this. In Christ you have an inheritance. In Christ you have all of these and these things. And we are to hold on to that, and really there's three chapters of that. And then chapters 4 through 6 would answer the question, well, then how do we live 
based on the fact that we have received these incredible blessings in Christ. So if I were to sum it up, chapters 1 through 3, what do we have in Christ? Chapters 4 through 6, how do we live now that we have what we have in Christ? Okay, And I want you to notice that right on the hinge, right on the, the middle point between those two stands Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Let's look at it now. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 says this, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So notice that this is the first verse now. In the second half of Ephesians, what is Paul asking the Ephesian church to do? He's asking them to now conduct their lives. That word walk is the idea of conduct your life. Live your life in such a way. Walk, he says, in a manner worthy. Conduct your life in line with the calling that you have received. By the way, that calling appears in chapters 1 through 3. So everything you've been given in chapters 1 through 3 is this incredible gift that you've been given, this incredible calling that you have. Live now your life in line with what it is that you have been given. And notice the word therefore. Friends, we do not want to miss words like this. The word therefore is pointing backwards and it's saying based on everything that has come before this, now live consistent with what you've received. So you've received all these things, therefore, now walk, now live. And in fact, Ephesians 4.1 is not just, believe it or not, the command for this particular verse. Ephesians 4.1 is the command that can actually be overarching everything that happens from this point on in the book. So every command that goes forward now in chapters 4 through 6 can be summed up by Ephesians 4.1. Now, what what do I mean by that? Well, let's just take one one example of of a command that occurs later on in the book of Ephesians. Let's take, for instance, Ephesians 5.23. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's a pretty specific command. That's a command in a very specific setting and in a very specific context in marriage, speaking to one of the partners in the marriage to say, love your wives, husbands, as Christ loved the church. And what we're seeing there is that Paul just doesn't give the command. Paul says, give the command. He says, love out of a love that you have already received from Christ. Christ has already loved you as the church. Now you take that love and use it to now love your wife. There is this this flow that is to happen where Christians have first received. We've first been given so much, and now we simply live out of what we have been given. We are the ultimate cups that overflow. We are to be poured into that we might then overflow and pour out into other people. So there's an example of how we've been received something. And then what does Paul say in 4.1? Now live like you've received it. Live in such a way as if you have received what you have received. That's what it means to live out the Christian life. To live the very thing. Simply overflow as a cup. So we're looking at this first and this most important command in the entire book, 
And I want us to read it one more time, and let's dive into the text together. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Number one, if you're taking notes, the command to the church is to grow together in unity. The command to the church is to grow together in unity. I want you to notice the word you there in the first line in verse one. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. That is humas in the Greek. It's plural. It's plural. That's important for us to know. It's a command to a group of people. It is not an individual command just to you. It is, it is saying to a specific group of people, a, a, a group of people that are actually gathered in a church in Ephesus in the first century AD, he's saying to all of them, I urge all of you to walk in a manner worthy. That's important. That adds context to the command. It tells us that this is not just an individual thing. There's actually a group of individuals that are supposed to now live that out in a specific setting. There's a group of people around them that they are supposed to live these things out with. And now what, what are the things that need to be lived out? Well, look at verses 2 through 3. Look at what they're supposed to do. With all humility, this is how they're supposed to live now, how they're supposed to walk. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, notice that there are four mannerisms. There's four, there's four characteristics that we're supposed to have in the way that we live out our lives now. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, which is probably a further explanation of patience, right? And then all that leads to a fifth mannerism, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So it's as if those first four are things we need to do, things that need to characterize our lives, and that all leads to a fifth one, whereas like we experience together now this unity amongst each other. So remember, don't lose this. Individuals in the Ephesian church were being commanded, a bunch of individuals together were being commanded to have unity amongst one another to live with humility amongst one another, to have gentleness for one another. All of these things were happening within a very specific setting. Now, here's what I want to say. You guys are wondering, you're going to wonder for a while now, where's elders? I thought we were talking about elders. I want you to first notice that elders are not mentioned anywhere in this verse. I first want us to see that he doesn't tell the elders that they need to make the church do that. Hey, elders, get the church to work together with gentleness and humility. Get the church to be unified. What's wrong with you, elders? He speaks directly to the church. He speaks to you, and he speaks to me as a member. He speaks to us, and he says, this is your responsibility, church. You are the ones that are supposed to be living this out. He commanded the church. He's commanded a specific group of people who were gathered as the church of Ephesus to do this. And you might say, well, I don't see that in the text. I don't see this specificity in the text. I want you to consider this for a minute. We can say we are gentle people. I can say I'm a gentle person. I cannot show you I'm a gentle person until I actually have a situation that comes up where I have to show gentleness. 
I can tell you I'm humble. I, I hope I don't. That would probably mean the opposite, right? But until I can show you humility with another person, you would say, well, I don't believe you. The, the, the whole idea of these commands of Scripture are that they are supposed to be lived out regularly with other groups of people. And so this was a specific set of commands saying, do this with each other, and it will show then if this is really happening in your heart or not. If we say to an individual who is gathered in a local church, be gentle with these 27 other members in your church, now these are real people who really will at times sin against you. They have addresses and they have phone numbers. They have, all, they have all the things that a real person has, and we are called now to actually engage them in a very particular way. It's different from saying, well, I'm gentle with all Christians, or I'm gentle with all people. I'm just a gentle person. No, there's actually a sense in which we're going to say, be gentle with these people. These are the people in your church. And some of you might, might say, well, what about everyone else in the world? Does everyone else in the world matter? You seem to be talking, Paul, or I'm, I am arguing that Paul is saying, you seem to be talking about doing this within the context of your local church, but aren't there other people outside of your local church? Why are you talking so much about unity and gentleness and humility and patience with these specific group of people? And this is what's so fascinating about love and about care and about encouragement. They are not a zero-sum game. Now, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by zero-sum? I mean it isn't like a gas tank. Love is not like a gas tank. Like, oh, I used up some love on that person. I don't have love for anybody else. I am constantly amazed as we keep having kids. I mean, we're on our third now how love doesn't get used up on my first kid, and then I have none left for my other kid. Or, oh, honey, I don't have any love left for you because we keep having more kids. That keeps dividing my love up, and I don't have anything left to give. Sorry. I, I don't know how to explain this. There's no mathematical equation for it. But as you love and exercise love, here's this crazy thing. It expands. It expands. So the Bible is not saying, hey, love the specific members of your church and that's it. The Bible is saying, as you love the specific members of your church, real people with real names and faces who have real sins, who have real dislikes and likes that are different than you, as you begin to love them, you now develop this ability to love outside of these walls. It's very similar to the way it works in your family, right? The first thing most people are given in life is their family. Those are the first group of people that, that, that they're, they're, let's face it, your family is going to see the worst of you. Your family is going to see you at your absolute weakest points. And yet they're the ones that love you the most. And so as you develop as a young person within a family, you, you kind of exercise all your all your mistakes and all of your lack of love, and you do this all with your family, and they kind of bear the brunt of it. And eventually you develop, you hope, you develop and learn as a young person how to love your family well. And you know what that does? It then spills out over into the people around you. The church acts this way, you guys. 
The church is a family where we practice on each other with grace, huge amounts of grace, the act of loving one another so that it will spill out beyond these walls and so other people will see this incredible love that we have. But you don't just get to say, I got love for everybody out there. I love them all. Let's see it. Let's see it with each other. And this is what Paul is saying here. You've been given so much in Christ now, church. Here's how you actually live that out. You do it by loving specific people who are in your church. Let's move on to verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. So notice there's a lot of one language going on right there, right? There's a lot of ones used over and over and over again. And the point is this, the unity that Paul is commanding in the church, remember he just told the church, be unified, be unified, be one. He told that local church, be one. The unity that Paul commands the church to display is in line with the unity that God himself has. Unity, if you're taking notes, here's point two. Unity in a local church glorifies God in that it displays something about his character for the world to see. Okay? So that unity that you are displaying as a church is not just going nowhere. It is spreading out and people are going, there is something about God's character in the unity of this church. Because God is many who are one. In case you haven't heard that before. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is actually something that the word Trinity comes from the words tri-unity. Tri-unity, smash that together and you get Trinity. What's the tri? That tri is the three. What's the unity? It's the one. There are three in one in God. God is three in one. He is many who are one. So when the church is going to say, okay, we want to display God, we want to display his glory to the world, one of the ways in which we're doing that, in fact, one of the most important ways, is that we are unified together because we are many, and if we act as one in unity, we are displaying that many in one idea to the world around. And that may sound very mystical to you, but I'm arguing that, God, that Paul is actually using that argument here, and he uses it several other places where we are to display God's character in the way we love and become one together as a, as a group, even though we are many. It displays something about his glory. Now, there's so much more to say about that, but I have to move on because we're, getting, we're going somewhere with this. Now, we see a change in verse 7 away from all the oneness language, okay? We saw one, 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 one up until verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Point three, if you're taking notes, every individual in the church is given a unique set of gifts to use for the upbuilding of the church. He's been talking about one, you're all one, you're all one, you're all one. Then he stops and he goes, but each and every person in the church has been given this set of gifts. He calls it grace. Later on, he's going to say that the grace is actually gifts that you were given. This is absolutely amazing to me. It means that you as an individual within the church 
one person within the church have been given a unique set of gifts by God. I think this is incredible. It's like a fingerprint. It is, it is specific to you. It is specific. It involves even your personality. Okay? It involves things, ways that you were created and made and even experiences that you've had in this life to develop in you certain things. And then he says, each one of you has been given that for a purpose. What is that purpose that we see? So he uses the word but here. He shifts. He starts. He moves away from the oneness. And now he says, each one of us. But what's the grace? Look at 4.8. Look at what is the grace now that he's been given? Therefore, it says... Ephesians 4.8, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So Paul all of a sudden quotes a psalm, Psalm 68.18, and in that psalm is the idea of one who is risen, risen up, and after he is risen up, he gives out, he hands out gifts to mankind. Okay? So it's a bizarre, it's sort of bizarre in its own Old Testament context. But once you realize this is pointing to Jesus, this is actually a prophecy that's pointing to Christ, you start realizing, wow, this is actually speaking to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and then gave the Holy Spirit out after his rising from the dead. So some of you might recall uh, John chapter 16, verse 7, where Jesus is gathered with his disciples. It's just before he's about to go to the cross. And he says this to them, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, Holy Spirit, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. What's Jesus saying there? He's saying, no, it's actually better for you all that I go to the cross and I am away from you. Remember, these guys had walked with Jesus for three years. He says, guys, I know this is going to be hard on you. I want you to know it is actually for your benefit that I leave you. Because when I do, when I die upon the cross, buried in the ground for three days, and rise again from the dead, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And the Holy Spirit to you is going to be your helper. He is going to be the one that is going to enable you to live now the way I have called you to live. And I want that for you. And it's better than you walking around with me for three years. I can't believe that. The Holy Spirit inside of us is better than walking with Jesus for three years, just simply walking with him and hanging out. I am amazed at that because how many of us have gone, man, to be there with him, listening to him, Getting all the parables, you know, that didn't make it into the Bible. You know, there's tons of stuff that he taught that, that, that John says that we couldn't even fill the books of all the libraries with all the stuff that he taught and did. To be able to see all that, man, I feel like I would be such a sanctified person if I saw that. And Jesus says, no, you actually, it's better for you to have the Holy Spirit, this gift that I have given you of the Holy Spirit than to have walked with me for three years. So here is a verse, Ephesians 4.8, talking about Jesus ascending from the grave. And then he gives gifts after he ascends, after he resurrects. And Paul says those gifts are the Holy Spirit active in each and every one of you with the particular gift package that each of you has received. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about the gifts like this. Chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. 
Paul says, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, lest you think that, oh, we're all given the same gift. He then goes on, and I'm not going to quote it. He then goes on to talk about lots and lots and lots of different gifts that are all given to each of us. In fact, then he goes on from there to say, okay, so just because you receive one gift, don't look at somebody else's gift and go, gosh, I wish that I had their gift. He says, don't do that. That's going to lead to disunity in the church. Rather, enjoy the gifts you have been given and realize that they are unique. Okay, so where are we at so far? I just want to pause for a minute and think, where have we come? Because we're building towards something here, okay? We, we started with chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, okay, based upon everything you've been given in Christ, now live, out, live it out. Live that way. Walk in unity with one another because of what you've been given. And then he says, but... Realize in your oneness, each and every one of you are unique. Each and every one of you has been given something specific to contribute to the whole to make the whole better than it was before. Okay, so it's very similar to the way our human body works, right? You've got a bunch of individual parts. In fact, this is an argument that Paul makes himself. You've got a bunch of individual parts, but, but, but what's the deal? You put all those parts together... And the whole is better than the sum of its parts, right? Like you're not just fingers and hands and toes and a head and all these things. If you were to just put, like duct tape those together, it doesn't work. There is this holistic idea of your body and who you are and how you function as a person that requires all of these individual parts moving and doing exactly what they do best. And he says, that's the church. The church are these people gifted by the Holy Spirit, each and every one of them contributing in unity to the whole. And as the whole comes together, you have this thing called the body. And by the, by the way, we do something called membership here. You know why we call it that? Each and every one of you are members, 1 Corinthians 12, of the body. If you're in Christ and if, you, if you've come into membership at Echo Church, that makes you a member, a part of the body. Okay. So you've been given this unique package. What are you now supposed to do with it? Okay, I'm going to skip verses 9 and 10. Paul gets into a theological discussion here that is going to unfortunately be a side point. In fact, some of you have it, you have parentheses in your Bibles when you read verses 9 and 10. So I'm just going to push that aside, not because I don't love every word of Scripture, but because this is a sermon for another time. But he continues his argument now into verse 11. And he's been talking about Jesus rising from the dead and giving out gifts in the form of the Holy Spirit. That's what he has said so far. And now we get to elders. Here we go. We're talking about elders, but notice that we haven't talked about them until right now because everything has been about you as the church, me as the church, and what we are supposed to do. We have a colossal task in front of us, and that is that we individuals come together in such a way that we are unified and using our gifts to cause this whole of Echo Church to be better than the individual members of it. That's what Paul has told us that we are to do, us spirit-filled Christians who are saying, yes, this is where I want my local church to be. 
That's the call for each of us. Now look at this, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And, that's important, that's important, Let's come, we'll come back to it. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. I'm going to put those together as one. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Let's stop there. Okay, not only did he gift each and every one of you, remember the verse a couple verses ago, not only did he gift every, each and every one of you with a gift package from the Holy Spirit to be able to use your gifts for God's glory and bring that together into a whole that's better than the sum of its parts, he also gave church leaders to you. He gifted you with, he says here, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now, it will take me another sermon to argue for why I'm not going to talk about apostles, prophets, and evangelists, okay? So, I'm just trying to tell you the limitedness of this sermon. I want to focus now on the gift of pastors and teachers, and I'm going to call that one office, all right? I have reasons for doing that. I'm going to call that one particular person, a pastor teacher, okay? And there's, you may have questions about that. We'll talk about that as we go forward. I'm so limited on time here, and I'm taking on a colossal text, okay? So just bear with me on that. Here's point number four. Elders are given by God to help the church use their gifts toward the upbuilding of the church, okay? Elders are given as gifts by God to help the church use their gifts toward the upbuilding of the church, Okay. So he gave gifts to the church, and in addition to giving gifts to the church, he gave these other gifts. One of them is what's called a pastor-teacher. Okay? Now, you might say, well, I don't, I don't see elders there. I see pastor and I see teacher, but I don't see elders. Last week, we were in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to 32, and we talked about Paul and his conversation with the Ephesian elders. And I just want to show you a couple verses from that. We're going to quickly glance at them. Verse 17, Acts 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders, notice that word, presbyteros, of the church to come to him. Acts 20, 28, speaking to the same group of people, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episcopos, Okay. So the same group that's called the presbyteros, the elders, are called the episkopos, the overseers. Same group, okay? And then he keeps going on. To care for, that word right there is poimano, that's shepherd. That's the same word as pastor. A pastor is nothing but a shepherd, okay? So pastor, to pastor them, to pastor the church of God. So he uses three, um, three words all speaking to the same group of people, elders, overseers, and pastors, they are the same person. And if you search the rest of Scripture, you're going to see that that title is the same no matter where you are in the Bible, okay? Talking about the same group of people, okay? Elders, overseers, pastors, some call, some call them bishops. Uh, there are lots of words you use. It's talking about the same person here. So when you see pastor in Scripture, you can use the word elder. In this church, your pastor can also be called an elder. An elder can also be called a pastor. 
They are the same word, okay? So I just want to avoid confusion. Now, what do we see these pastors doing? We see these pastors given by the church, given by God to the church, and what are they to do now? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, why did I spend all of that time at the beginning of this sermon focusing on the context of Ephesians chapter 4? Because Ephesians chapter 4 is about the saints doing the work of the ministry. It's about the saints acting in unity. It's about the saints using their gifts. It's about the saints. And then here come elders to help them. That's what elders do. They help the church. And what are they working towards? Look at, let's look at 12 through 14 now. Second half of 12. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, speaking about the body of Christ, right? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. The congregation's job is to build up the body of Christ. We've already seen that. That's the congregation's job. That's the member's job of a congregation. And they are aiming at full unity and full knowledge of Jesus. So there's your job requirement. There's what you are given by God's word. That's what you are to do within the church. Now, I think we are seeing two areas where elders specifically lead the church. Notice that they are called pastors and teachers. They have two functions here. They are not just pastors, and they're not just teachers. They are pastors and teachers. And here we see the results of both of those roles. So notice, a pastor speaks more of shepherding, and it speaks more to unity. They pastor the church towards unity. Look at the verse 13a, the very beginning again, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. There's the pastor role of a pastor. Bring everybody together, help the sheep to stay together. When there are fights amongst people, right, the pastors get involved and care and shepherd and, and they say, hey, we're all going this way, right? There's kind of a, a vision leadership idea that a pastor has and it keeps us together as we're lockstep going in one direction, right? Unity, unity. A pastor, the word pastor there has the idea Keep those sheep together. Why? Because when the one sheep is out there, that's where the wolves go, right? So get, get everybody together, going in one direction, and united and unified. The pastor has a, has a gift, is a gift, given by God to keep the church unified. The very thing that they're called to do. The very thing that every single Christian is called to do as a member of a local church. The pastors now are pastoring and shepherding in order to keep the church in unity. They're not just getting along with each other. They're operating using their gifts the way a human body works, right? Each individual part contributing to the whole. But that's not all. We also see now the word teacher come out. Where do I see that? Look at the second half of verse 13. And of the knowledge of the Son of God. Where does the knowledge of the Son of God come from? It comes from teaching. 
right? Now, of course, you can say, well, it comes from my Bible. Yes, yes. And teachers, their job is to open up God's Word and to bring a meal to the congregation each and every week that is, and it better be, based upon God's Word. Now, who is spoken about in God's Word? Jesus Christ Himself. And so when we open up God's Word, wherever we are in the text, we are getting a glimpse of Jesus of what he's done on the cross for us. We're reminding ourselves of the gospel each and every time. And so the pastor teacher, their job is to keep the unity of the church, the first half of 13, and then they are to add to the knowledge of Christ, the second half of 13, and this is what they do. They are to help the church to do what the church has already been called to do. Okay? So that's we, we, we've made it through as far as we can get in our text, and I just want to conclude with a couple of things at this point. The main point of this sermon is to see, is for you to see that the local church has a job to do. Elders don't first and foremost have a job to do. The congregation first and foremost has a job to do. And guess what? I'm a member of the congregation. If I'm an elder of this congregation, I'm also a member of this congregation, which means I have a job to do with you. Then the elders come along in the text, and they lead the church in helping the church to do what they're supposed to do. That's why we use the words, equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's their job. Now, how specifically did we see them do that? We saw them pastoring the saints to equip them, keep them unified, help them, love them, counsel them, keep, keep going, keep fighting don't derail your faith. Don't walk away from Jesus when things are hard. Let's sit down together. Let's open the word together. Let's keep things going. Don't lose this. That's pastoring. And then there's teaching. Let's grow. Let's grow more towards Christ. Let's see him in scripture in clearer and clearer ways so that we can grow in our knowledge and our love of who he is. And the result is that the church grows in unity and the church grows in knowledge of Jesus, and they avoid getting derailed by false teaching, which is the next section, so that they may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So the, one of the reasons we teach the word of God is so that we might not get derailed in our faith. So that's been the main point. The church is to exercise her gifts, which means you who are in the church have been given gifts that you need, that you need to use in the church. And the elders come along to help that happen. The series is called Elders and the Local Church. This is your role. Elders have a role to assist you in doing what you're doing. So, how are we at ECHO trying to reflect this? What are some specific things that we're trying to do here to, in order to make this happen? Um, it seems to me that in many churches, and again, I don't even have a particular church in mind. I have a general idea of the way things typically go in church today. Evangelicalism, the standard church that you kind of walk into. It seems that in many churches, Individual Christians tend to be bystanders in the faith. They come to a service. 
They typically will watch the service. They will participate in the worship, of course. They will see what's going on in the front. They will listen to a sermon. They will, you know, at times they will give even of their resources to that church, and they will walk away. And that's what they get. And then every Sunday, it's like, well, I show up. It's very similar to a sporting event. I show up, and I might even pay some money, right, to go in. I walk in. I observe what is taking place, and it is the professionals up front that are actually doing the thing, and I get to watch as they do the thing. And from day one in this church plant, what we have tried to do is to say, that isn't what we see in the Bible. We see a... a if anything, if there's, a, if there's an image of a sporting event, and, we, and we, if we want to keep that metaphor, by the way, there's some reasons not to keep that metaphor, so bear with me. Bear with me. If we keep the event, the, 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 the metaphor of the sporting event, we, we, we see that it's the church that's playing. The church is playing the baseball game. And, and, I, and I see that there are, there are managers and there are coaches who are elders, but they're not even playing the game. Does that make sense? They probably know how to play the game. They better. They better. But they're just like, come on, let's go get them. We're going to do this. All right, let's go. Go out there and do it. Make it happen. You see the difference there? I just think there's a difference in the vision, the, the foundational imagery of what we're even doing when we come together as a church. And what elders are supposed to do. Because so often you're going to look to your elders and go, go, go do the work of the ministry. Go make it happen. Come on, aren't you guys supposed to be starting programs and getting lots of things done? Actually, as I read scripture, we all are supposed to be doing that. All of us together. Me with you. And then there are elders come along and say, let's help. Let's guide this process as it takes place. So when we planted Echo Church, we specifically set up some things to reflect this teaching. Number one, we want to clearly identify who the church is. Who is on the playing field? That's the first question we've wanted to identify. And so we've taken membership very seriously at this church. Church membership is the process of identifying who the church is in the first place. That's the first question we wanted to know. Who's on the field playing? We want to know that you're a believer if you come into membership, we want to know that you agree to the same rules, right? So we have a church covenant, we have a doctrinal statement, we have things we believe, and we want to know, do you agree with those things? Or is there another church down the road where you say, I agree much more with that other church? Great, awesome. But we have some specific rules that we're playing by. And we want to know that if we're all going onto the field together, we're going to play by those same rules, so to speak. We're understanding scripture to mean roughly the same thing. We want to know that you indeed want to play, right? That like when you're signing up for the Christian life, you know what you're signing up for, that you know that this is about us as Christians living out this Christian life the way we're called to. So we want to know that that's even a desire. And we want to be very clear about who is on the field. That's a really important thing to us. Who goes out onto the field? Who are the players? Elders then know who to pastor. Does that make sense? Like we know who to, who's on the field playing, so we know who to help in their playing. It doesn't mean we won't take you out to coffee and hang out with you and even disciple you if you're not yet a member at this church, but it does mean that we have 
a responsibility to a specific, right now, 28 group of members who are in this church, and many of you are in this room right now. Number two, our members' gifts will determine a lot of the direction of our church. You ever thought about that? Our church is uniquely gifted from every other church because we have unique people in it with unique gifts, and when they come together, they form a a oneness that's different from all the other churches around. That means that our church isn't going to look exactly like any other church. We're going to operate based upon the gifts that we actually have. We want the congregation to use their gifts to build the body of Christ up, and elders will then come alongside and help to equip the congregation in the uniqueness that they've been given, the job that they've been given together as a church. So, two examples. We haven't created small groups for you all to join. We haven't just said, we've got 10 small groups here, choose one. What we say to our members is, man, isn't fellowship an important part of the Christian life? Yeah, yeah, it is. Okay, go make that happen. Go start a group. We'll help. We will help in building you up, helping that to take place, all of that stuff. We don't just simply create groups. We're going to hire a guy named Patrick, Patrick Vestergaard. He's going to be here. They're actually on their way from Louisville as we speak. It's going to take them about a week or so to get here. He will be our first hire at Echo Church. His job will be to help organize things better so that you, the members, can be set up to run things in this church. In other words, he's not here to just do a bunch of the work of the ministry. I've made it very clear to him that his job is to equip, do everything behind the scenes that he can do, work hard, so that as you guys are now doing the work of the ministry, say on a Sunday morning, you've got everything you need in order to make that happen. Number three, the congregation makes all of the important decisions in the church. That's just a reflection out of the fact that the congregation first and foremost is spoken of in Scripture, not the elders. The congregation is, being, is told, here's what you are to do. The elders lead them in those important decision-making by pastoring and teaching them in their decisions. So today's sermon wasn't so much on what elders do as it was what the congregation does, and then it's where elders find their place in the midst of the congregation. And that's important for us to get. And it's an important thing to constantly be shifting in our mind what it is because we're going to slip into old modes of doing church. We're going to slip into there's a professional clergy that does all the work and, and, that, and that we're going to sort of push onto them the things we want done. That's in me. And I would assume for many of you in this room, that's in you. That's the way church has been done. And just as I open Scripture, I'd like to lead us in a different direction. I'd like to see that Scripture is talking about some other things. And where are we going? Let's just end here. Where are we going? Ephesians 4, 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. The end result of all this is not so that we can say, look how great we are. The end result of this is not so we can say, look how biblical we're being. We're being so, we're being so faithful. That's not the end. That's not the goal of this whole thing. 
It isn't even to say that we're a healthy church. The point of all this is that we are on a trajectory that brings us closer to Christ. Isn't that what's being said there? That as we are doing these things, everything that we've just seen in chapter 4, as those things are happening, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, our head of the body, Jesus. We are the body of Christ. He is our head. Our job is to grow up into Him. That's our goal. That is our desire, to know the one who loved us while we were still in our sins, to have a deeper, more intimate relationship with him, to know that one has redeemed us, the one who has redeemed us by his death on the cross, to know a deeper love than we have ever experienced before. That's why we care about how we want to handle church. Because we see that as we're doing this, as we grow together, we're going to get a deeper sense of who he is. That's all we want. We have one goal as, as Christians, that's to know him. And the church is the means, it's the vehicle by which we can know him in a deeper way. So let's do this. Let's do this according to scripture because scripture is the revelation of God showing us who Christ is. And that's what we want. So let's take responsibility for ourselves to do what Scripture has asked each of us to do, and let's appoint elders who will help to pastor and teach towards this biblical vision of doing church. Let's pray. Father, we've, we've covered so much feeling technical stuff. It feels like technical stuff about how we're supposed to live and how you've gifted us and all of these things. But Lord, don't let us lose the fact that this is about our intimacy and our passion with you, Jesus. We want so badly to be drawn into ways of operating that honor you and that draw us closer to you. And Lord, it seems clear by the way you're commanding us that there are ways to do that better and there are ways to do that worse. And we want to be on the better. And again, Lord, this isn't a, I pray it would not be for any of us about simply a prideful thing. Oh, look how well we're doing this but simply, a, oh, we can see, we can see Jesus at work in the midst of our congregation. So God, I pray that you would come in power and enable us to be that kind of church. Members using their gifts, elders leading and equipping, pushing, putting members forward to be able to do what they've been called to do, freeing them to do what they've always been, been gifted to do. And I pray that we would operate as a church and others would see the way we are as a church, the way we are unified and love one another and that they would respond to you, Jesus, because of what they see in us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen.